Dr. Funkenstein Clinton. And whenever I'm in Ann Arbor, I check out WCBN FM. They do the job. WCBN FM and Arbor. got living writers i'm t hetzel you've, you've got wcbn fm ann arbor and today in the studio cody Shear is here um we're taping this program it's the 18th of april 2014 yes. cody, thanks so, so much for having me it's so good <laughs> to see you here yes. and exciting news um your your collection of short stories incendiary girls is hot off the presses mm-hmm. last week yes. was its launch into yes, the world exactly. how does how does this feel april 8th <laughs> um it's a little bit surreal you know we work for so long um alone with these imaginary people in our heads um and now it feels like my baby is out into the world and um to a certain extent i don't have nearly as much control over it (laughs) and it's also interesting um you know as an introvert which most writers are right to kind of start into this promotional mode um i'm enjoying it thus far but did it's you, did like you start i said in it's a little surreal was that where you you like the book was launched was it in iowa cody where so, you where you're from actually had the launch here in ann arbor on april 8th and then actually did um, a reading in Prairie Lights in Iowa City just on the 13th. Yes. So the Iowa City launch was on the 13th. um, And that was very special because I grew up in Iowa. I was born in Iowa City, um, grew up in a smaller rural place in Iowa. And it was just a really great homecoming. I mean, I had like five high school teachers who came to the reading. It was just, it was really fantastic. It was really touching. And um, Prairie Lights is kind of of a sacred space for me because I had been going, I had actually been going to this particular like amazing independent bookstore since I was a kid. I mean, my mom had been taking me there. We would get to go once a month and it 
was always a very special thing. Um, and of course, I mean, just the, the quality of writers that come through that store is just mind boggling. So it was just, it was such an honor to be there. I, I loved it. And so. I bet it was never as packed as it was for the hometown girl. <laughs> yes, with it's her, true. Her, first, her debut collection. Yes, exactly. It was, um, it was standing room only. And um, it was just, it was really moving and touching. And I was, I was glad to be there. Oh, well, and so, so this, this is your first collection, mm-hmm. Cody. And, um, and let's see, and it's, it's published by, let's see, New Harvest, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, mm-hmm. and Amazon Publishing. So it's this, yes. a new a sort of branch. Yes. So and you had a single, a Kindle single mm-hmm. released last year. The cam- when a camel breaks your heart. Yes, which is great a great s- title. <laughs> Thank you. About a boyfriend. <laughs> yes, who turns into a camel? Um, so little teaser there. But yes, that was actually released as a Kindle single. Um, I do really admire Amazon's efforts to kind of revitalize the short story and really get um, the form out to people who wouldn't normally otherwise, you know, be reading short fiction, Um, especially a lot of people who are reading, you know, on the Kindle are not necessarily the types who would be finding short fiction, but the Kindle Singles program has made it much easier. You know, when you have people like Stephen King having Kindle Singles, um, that tends to attract some attention. So that was kind of... um, the start of my relationship with Amazon Publishing. And just in the last year or so, they have created um, a literary imprint. They have a number of other imprints. So um, a romance imprint, they have a mystery imprint. Um, I believe they also have a sci-fi imprint. So they're actually publishing books um, as well as being a retailer of these books. So um, I first got involved, as I said, through this Kindle single program. This editor was soliciting manuscripts, had a really great experience. Um, The story did really quite well. I mean, it was translated into German. I did an audiobook for it. Um, So it was just, I, it was really fascinating to me to see how how far we've come in terms of digital literature. I mean, this was only available through either a Kindle device or, you know, you could do the Kindle app and you could read it on your smartphone, smartphone, excuse me, um, or your tablet, anything like that. But it was never actually a physical print story. Um, So to see that kind of enthusiasm and that hunger for people who might not normally experience or see short stories, or even know that they exist um, was really great to see. And so, you got to actually see the numbers of people who are yes. downloading yes. it or accessing it. Yes, so, and uh, I got royalties, which was also brilliant. pretty surreal for a short story. Um, so 
Well, that seems exciting, it, and maybe another is. reason why Stephen King is also <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know it, that you know, this that certainly helped. Um, <laughs> well, I can remember Stephanie at Old Town. Stephanie, who's engineering today, um, I can remember her saying, "Cody's got this the single out," and I remember thinking it sounded almost like um, like an album. You know, yeah. like you're putting a single exactly. out before the collection. Exactly. And I love the idea of that, and that's actually kind of it worked like that fairly organically. So, um, my editor. The Kindle single was also just yes, Carmen Johnson. Yes, just starting to acquire manuscripts of short story collections um, as well as novels, and it ended up that you know I was able to show her. Um, the whole manuscript, and she was really excited about it. And so, um, basically, there's there's an agreement because it's also the print book, right? There's the ebook, was which is actually available through Amazon Publishing, and then the print book is actually available through Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. So it's like it's a distribution agreement between the two companies, basically. Well, it sounds like a smart idea. Really, yes. How I, did you get the single? Like, how did you flag the interest? And thanks for walking me through uh, this. Yes, so, definitely. This because it's new, still most people don't know a whole lot about this. Cutting process. edge. Cody yes, Shear. Well, cutting we're edge. Working on it. Right. Um so actually, this particular editor, Carmen Johnson, was visiting various MFA programs and kind of scouting and, you know, trying to get people to um, submit some manuscripts to her. And she got really excited about the story that I sent to her. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Yes. It's, yes. It's, and before we go any further, because I think I should say, not only are you a hometown girl in Iowa City for Prairie Lights, you're mm-hmm. also, you know, pr- we're proud of you here, one of Michigan's own. Yes. Um, and so, but I should s- still read your bio on the back yeah. of your, your collection, Incendiary Girls, for everyone out there listening. Um, so here goes, folks. Cody Shear teaches writing at the University of Michigan. For her work as writer-in-residence at the Comprehensive Cancer Center, she was awarded the Dezank Prize for Excellence in Literary Fiction and Community Service. Her stories have appeared in the Chicago Tribune, the Iowa Review, and other publications. So there, there we have it. And Cody, when did you, so you, you were growing up in Iowa. When mm-hmm. did you start writing? Like, tell us about, cause you, so, you worked in a, a neurology lab yes. too. So it wasn't necessarily a straight path. Like what, there tell us about what Very happened. kind of convoluted <laughs> path to writing. Um, you know, I, I'd always been an avid, avid reader and bookworm growing up um, and loved writing, but I didn't really see it as a viable career path. Um, it was just something that, in some ways, to be an English major, to be able to read books and talk about them, seemed almost like a luxury in some ways. And I just felt much more comfortable at that point as, you know, um, in late high school and then um, for most of college, undergrad, that. You know, I thought the sciences was something I I also had a talent for. Um, And it seemed like a much more clear-cut path. You know, you go to medical school for four years, you do a residency, and you're a physician. So I was was also afraid um, because the path to becoming a writer is much more 
nebulous and and ambiguous and um, kind of frightening in a lot of ways. So I really pursued the sciences as an undergraduate. I actually did an undergraduate major, an interdisciplinary major um, in cognitive neuroscience. I took all of some of the heinous pre-med science classes and um, I actually, this is embarrassing, but I took my first creative writing workshop for an easy A for my med school applications. And as I said, I had always loved writing and it wasn't, and I was excited to take the class, um, but I didn't know I would fall in love so deeply and fully <laughs> with language and narrative. So be careful what you do, yes. which classes you choose, because it can exactly. change your life. Exactly. Change everything. Um, well, all these uh, classes, the sciences and medicine mm-hmm. inform incendiary girls. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So you can see where this this history of yours yes. is at work in your yes. your storytelling. Yeah, and you can still see those obsessions, I think, that I, that I have. Um, and also, you know, I was working in a neurology lab and worked in a lab for several years outside of uh, or after undergrad um, and started to take some more creative writing classes. I was actually at the University of Iowa, which happens to be a pretty amazing place to stumble into creative writing workshops um, and got to work with some some great people, um, including when she was still a teaching assistant at the time, Ian Lee. So I was very fortunate the, to be in that place at that time. I mean, there was this kind of converge, convergence of things that, that really kind of helped me along. And I had a lot of great encouragement from teachers um, and writing instructors. And, you know, ultimately I was, you know, still trying to figure out, do I want to go into medicine? Is this something I want to do? I kept um, putting off basically all of the registration deadlines for the MCAT. Like I had taken all of the classes, um, but was just putting it off. Uh, And when I was working in the lab with human subjects or um, working in the women's clinic or volunteering at the hospital, I just, I found myself a lot more interested in people's stories than their pathologies. And I was like, ah, maybe I'm supposed to be writing about this. So that's kind of the, the rather convoluted path that, that I got to writing fiction. And so it was key having a few people mm-hmm. in, in Iowa also encourage you. Certainly, yes. Yes, I had another amazing teacher, um, Gallaudet Howard, and she was actually, in her kind of previous life, she was a nurse practitioner, but then later came to the writer's workshop at Iowa to um, obviously study the craft of writing and, and fiction, and she was working a novel at the t- on a novel at the time, so it was kind of fundamental that I had someone there. Gallaudet was just fantastic in showing me that there are a lot of different paths and that I could still maybe do something in the medical field if I wanted to. Um, But certainly, you know, I could also kind of pour some of these obsessions and I could explore science and medicine through my fiction. So, And we're going to hear a little bit of it right when we yes. come back from yes. the break today Definitely. on living writers cody shear is here her her 
her debut collection, Incendiary Girls, just out last week. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Stand up straight at the foot of your love I lift my shirt up Stand up straight at the foot of your love I lift my shirt up I was carried to Ohio you're just tuning in glad you did i'm t hetzel and today cody Shear is here on living writers we've got stephanie behind the glass engineering playing the great songs that cody has has picked out and and stephanie's like weaving them into the program and that one was a great sing-along yeah definitely (laughs) we're all kind of like swaying and (laughs) and cody so a, a couple of things um because we did promise that you, that in this that you're going to read something from your mm-hmm. your collection Incendiary Girls, um, just published last week. Um, but 
But first, I wanted to mention a quick shout out, which you've already done. But you've you've been saying how Prairie Lights, the Iowa City mm-hmm. uh, bookstore, was so important. You'd go there once a month with your As mom, a like child, it would be yes. like growing up. It yes. was this touchstone type of place. It sounds mm-hmm. like, and you dedicated your book for mom who read to me every day. I did. Yes, um, she's a very special person to me, and um, I I obviously would not have been able to do what I did without her. So. Well, because it sounds like she's the one that ignited this, this actually like love and need of words and, Mm -hmm. and storytelling. Well, that's, well, that's, that's great. Now, and we also off air, you mentioned that you were doing recently an audio book. You just did an audio book for incendiary girls. Yes. So now everyone, this will be a preview of the audio book that you could also pick up (laughs) as read by author Cody Shear, which is nice because we were saying also, it's good that you had, you were the one to read your, it's actually, it's fairly rare. I I did have to kind of audition and send them in a little tape, you know, before they, they agreed to everything. Um, But I was just ecstatic to be able to read it myself and be able to put in the inflections that I had actually intended. So, So what are you going to read for us, Cody? So I am going to read a little bit from a story called No Monsters Here. Hannah found his left ear in the laundry hamper. It was unmistakably her husband's, small with a leaf-shaped brown mole on the lobe. She ran to the television and turned it on, fearing the worst. A helicopter shot down, a mortar attack, a roadside bomb. What had she done wrong? Ever since Hannah had been on the searcher lean, she'd lost the constant worries about her loved ones, which was why she stopped taking the medication to keep her family safe. That morning, Hannah had resumed her ritual of going through the family photo album and touching the middle of each picture of their daughter, always with her index finger, wiping away the fingerprint with a paper towel. If she didn't get the exact middle of the photograph, Hannah would touch it again until she got it right. Otherwise, Lily would have drowned during Red Cross swimming lessons. Of course Hannah understood how ridiculous this sounded, but she'd been performing these behaviors for years, and as a result, nothing bad had ever happened. Her therapist had been helping Hannah to see that her anxieties were unfounded. She was instructed to think of something minor and specific, something that wouldn't be terrible if it actually did happen. For example, that morning, Hannah had been listening to NPR with headphones so she wouldn't wake Lily. She started tapping the left headphone as the sound cut out, and Hannah knew that she had to tap the foam 16 times or John would lose the hearing in his left ear. As directed by her therapist, She refused to perform the sequence, touching the headphone only once. Hearing loss on one side, while inconvenient, wouldn't be so terrible for him. But finding his ear in the laundry hamper amplified Hannah's worst nightmares. Come back in one piece, she'd told him. In his civilian life, John had been a botanist who talked to his plants. He'd joined the National Guard expecting to help in mass casualties or natural disasters. But now he cared for soldiers in a field hospital halfway around the world. Still, he was an idealist. 
Hannah tried to picture him without an ear, just a hole on the left side of his head. Maybe he'd come home missing a leg or an arm. That she could probably deal with, something she could make a plan for. Schedule the physical therapy appointments, research the best artificial limbs, install safety railings in the bathroom. There was nothing on the evening news. Hannah waited for a compulsion to become clear, a sequence that would keep John safe. Maybe some of the sertraline was still in her system, keeping the behaviors at bay. Her fingers ached from clutching the ear, all cold and fleshy like a dried apricot. Hannah resisted the urge to call the other wives. They would either make her hysterical with their speculation or tell her to toughen up and be strong. Instead, she tucked the ear into her bra, close to her heart, and shivered. She didn't like the asymmetry. On the kitchen counter, the indicator light on the laptop glowed like a lightning bug, beckoning Hannah. She refreshed her email four times and left the screen on just in case. She waited for a phone call, some small reassurance, any information about her husband that would explain the seed of dread sprouting in the pit of her stomach. Pulling the ear from her bra, Hannah wondered if her obsessive-compulsive tendencies were triggering delusions. As she watched CNN, she turned the ear in her palm over and over, feeling the stiff cartilage. The edge that would attach to his head was smooth and clean, as if made of clay. In her mind, she replayed what she'd tell their six-year-old daughter. Hannah chose their bedtime book carefully, a story about a young witch who had lost her father and kept messing up the spells. Mom, Lily said, when will Daddy be home? I don't know, Hannah replied, but what he's doing is very dangerous. According to John's regular emails, missives that spanned several pages, this was not exactly true. Hannah didn't know what to believe. She knew with certainty that he was a medic in the reserves. He said when they got bored, they'd neuter the stray cats. There were hundreds of cats slinking around the compound. They'd grab a tomcat, put him under, snip, snip. But she also knew that John didn't want her to worry, and he had a grand imagination. If the cats were a cover story, she'd never forgive him. John couldn't go and die on them. He was the very person who kept Hannah in balance, the calm to her panic, the yin to her yang. He's the one who suggested that most people didn't have such ruminations and that she didn't have to live with them if she didn't want to. I know he loves us very much, no matter what, Hannah said to her daughter, trying to sound confident. Okay, Lily said. Time for monster check. Hannah opened the closet door. No monsters there. No monsters under the desk. But when Hannah checked under the bed, she was horrified to find her husband's right arm nestled between two oblong boxes full of winter clothing, the fingers splayed as if reaching for something. Thanks, Cody. Well, I know you had to stop sometime, but... Right. Jeez. <laughs> I think it's... Why did you choose to read this 
from this story for, from the collection for us, Cody? So I, I think this particular story um, is a nice sample because it does kind of introduce early on, as in most of the stories, some kind of strange or fantastical element. Um, First line here. It, right? right, exactly. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Like, uh, I finds the, finds the ear in the laundry hamper. Um, so it kind of introduces, in a lot of ways, that there will often be something kind of otherworldly. Um, and I, I would say that I'm really working within in the tradition of magical realism. So there's one thing about the world that's off or strange or somehow not on its access. But um, for the most part, everything else is of our world. And that's what I really was, you know, and am trying to show. Like, this is a very rare, real character dealing with some very real circumstances. Um, and it just happens that her emotional state manifests in finding these body parts of her husband throughout the house so and then you're left as the reader to wonder yes <laughs> um, and so where that's, is this going <laughs> and i i did think that's oh maybe this is why we're that you chose to read about hannah because there are in all the stories like when you you start the as you're saying cody obviously like there there's this this magical quality to them mm -hmm. and surreal mm -hmm. and what is happening um for example, just so people have a sense of another one, um, a medical student's cadaver is comes to her house. Yes, where, where essentially she, comes to life as a, as a ghost and in, it's kind of haunting in her in some ways. Yes, like if they've dissected the muscles in the back, mm -hmm. that's that's how he shows up. He shows up without the muscles in the back. Yes, certainly. Yes. And so this idea of what is real and what is and, and you're playing with that and what we create, like because each mm -hmm. of us are creating our own reality, even of as course. we're bumping yes. around in the world. Yes. But but you're heightening it, too. Yes. And I think a lot of the stories, um, while there's often, you know, some kind of um, medical issue or illness or certainly all of the stories are connected um, by... Um, this kind of obsession and interest and exploration of the body, right? Um, but and mind, yes, certainly. Like, so how you know how does that intersect um, the physical and the psychological? And that's really what I'm interested. In. And also, how do we wrestle with our expectations versus reality? Now, in a lot of these cases, the realities are you know can be kind of strange and otherworldly. For example, if you had a, a simian baby, <laughs> like how do you this is how another do you this is another one of this? the stories. <laughs> yes, yes, this one is called Primal Sun. Um, but how do you deal with having? Um, you know, a child who is very different from what you expected. Um, and I think that's actually does speak to a lot of people's experiences. Again, wrestling with um, expectations versus reality. Let's take a short break. Um, you, you're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Cody Shear is here. Her her latest, or her debut collection, Incendiary Girls, is on the table before us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Two white horses and a line. 
ride horses in a line To ride horses in a line I give it to You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Cody Shear and her collection, Incendiary Girls, out with Amazon Publishing and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, mm-hmm. um, a new Harvest book. So that must be the name of maybe this the, the imprint relationship. Yes. New Harvest. New Harvest, correct. Which is a very good, I mean, when you read your collection, I mean, we're talking about body parts, et cetera. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a new harvest here. It is. It and is. Some, some magical realism. It feels appropriate. What does it take to survive in this world? Yes. And, yes. Um, well, well, Cody, so you've, you've had the book launch here in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. and you've also been to Iowa City. So mm-hmm. what's next on this book tour? Where, where are some places that people could catch you as they're, you know, tripping around the U.S.? Yes. So I will actually be reading in Seattle at Third Place Books next Wednesday, the 23rd at 7 p.m. And that will be in conversation with fellow author and friend Christiana Kahakawila. So very excited about that. Um, Also, the next day, I believe, April 24th, I'll be reading in Bellingham at Western Washington University. Um, And then, let's see, I will head to New York and I'll be reading at the KGB Bar on May 4th for their Sunday Night night Fiction series. Very psyched about that. And then I will be back in Ann Arbor to do a workshop with 826 Michigan. Oh, Um, friends of the show. Wonderful. Yes, yes, certainly. It's how to write like I do. I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of series, but a number, um, you know, they bring in a number of especially local authors. And um, it's this great workshop and also fundraiser for 826, where, you know, we talk a little bit about... um, as the title, uh, you know, makes clear how to write like I do. Um, so I'll be reading a little bit from some of my work and then I'm really interested in, you know, how you can mine autobiography, but tell it slant, like Emily Dickinson says, of course, um, you know, how can I make this kind of new and novel to a different group of people. You know, how can I make a fairly mundane breakup story something 
new or you know and are you, is this when you introduce a camel yes exactly exactly throw in a camel make sure that the boyfriend turns into a camel um and kind of go from there <laughs> or for example um the title story is actually refers to or, or chronicles um a young girl's journey through the armenian genocide and i was really curious it's actually based on a good friend's great-grandmother's story. So much of what this young girl went through is actually based on on fact. You know, these death marches across the deserts of the Ottoman Empire, losing her family, um, actually being sold uh, as a slave, essentially, to another local family, um, and then eventually making it to America. That was all based in With fact. a barber. Yes, yes, a barber in Detroit, yes. Um, I wondered if there was, what <laughs> yes. with this story, I was wondering if there was, a, like, a basis there, of, because yes. you do, because um, there's a line about... W- um, the title, like the character, the main character, where it's how many grandchildren mm-hmm. she has, and one one doctor in it, yes, and then and then also great grandchildren, and so that yes, was this, this exactly was your, your that was actually yes, kind of um, part of um, his family's narrative and and story. So, I mean, I was I felt grateful to kind of be the messenger, but also to and, and to get this in print because it is so extraordinary. Um, I mean, once he was telling me about it, I just could not get Vartui, this girl, out of my head. Um, it was just so amazing and extraordinary, this story of perseverance, essentially. Um, but I was also thinking, well, how can I tell this in a, in a different way? So um, let's talk about your narrator. Yes. <laughs> An angel of death is how the genderless um, kind of narrator refers to him herself, itself, I guess. Um, and this kind of unorthodox angel of death is, um, you know, placing bets with his colleagues, his or her colleagues, um, and... They, based on, you know, the the experiences that they've had, kind of escorting people into potentially another realm, they make bets based on these people's behaviors. And they actually suspect that this particular girl, Vartui, um, will not make it past adulthood. Um, but the extraordinary part is that she she does and um, far exceeds any of their expectations. So without um, Cody, when you what at what point were you thinking that, you know, this is a story I want to tell because mm-hmm. it's it's I can't get this girl, this image yes. this, out of my mind and parts of her story. Um, one part that's staying with me is the part where she's describing um, being with her little sister on the street and yeah. seeing a yeah. girl that she looks up to in the village who's 17, mm-hmm. um, then lit on fire by some of the, the police. Right, exactly. Um, or soldier police, yes. I guess, really. Um, so these things are so vivid. And so how, how did you, like, what was this moment when you thought, thought I'm gonna tell it slant mm-hmm. and I have this like the angel of death comes to you mm-hmm. like w- how did it take did you write through it in the process where you were writing the story 
without this voice in there at first or or was the voice always sort of I there this like ominous the, this ominous voice was um as soon as i heard the the her kind of survivor's testimony um and and Vartui actually passed um in the late 80s i believe um but i you know her family members had written down her testimony and so much of it was spare and i felt like there's a certain amount of filling in the lines um i was obviously interested in her kind of the the visceral reality of how this was happening um because that relates a lot back to the other stories right but also how do you heal after this great trauma i mean it's it's and that was something again i started to kind of obsess about um and just try to figure out and, and fill in those lines and try to figure out what was actually unsaid in that testimony. Um, and I was interested in how we create these narratives to kind of make order out of chaos, right? And these are the tales that we tell ourselves in order to survive. Because there's not only the bodily survival, but there's the mind that has to survive and then deal with the aftermath and the trauma of all of this. And so that's what I was really interested in. And also, I was thinking about what would some kind of foreign being actually think of how we as humans make narratives and like tell ourselves tales, whether they're true or not, we cling to them to make this kind of, again, order out of chaos. And it, it seemed kind of logical that the, the foreign being would actually be a type of angel of death. Um, and I also wanted, you know, some, some humor with the pathos um, so that it wasn't just this I mean, it is a genocide story, but I wanted to show um, some moments of lightness and how someone of a foreign being like that would actually deal with death all of the time. Well, they make bets. At least that was kind of where I headed with it. They make bets on certain humans. And, um, and what's when going to bring them down. Exactly. That's part of the bet. Yes, Not exactly. Not the time frame, yes. what it is. Yes. And- time frame, <laughs> um, you know, typhus age 12. It's not, it's not, it's the specific age. Um, it's also the type of demise. Yes. So, so that that is interesting to think. This voice is something that you poured in mm-hmm. to this these uh, these spaces, making this mm-hmm. story, um, well, sharing the story, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, and that's actually um, different from a number of the other stories. I actually start with the very weird premise that I can't get out of my head, like this ghost medical cadaver that that is coming alive. And I'm like, okay, so then what are the circumstances around this? Like, what kind of medical student would be really affected by, you know, this type of manifestation? Um, and also, I started, you know, in Primal Sun with the kind of monkey baby story, as I've referred to it. Um, I started with the monkey baby, and then I kind of created in this just really strange outlandish premise, premise, um, and then kind of went, created the characters from there. And then after a number of drafts, I was finally figured 
I was finally able to figure out really what the theme was and try to shape the narrative from there. And, so, And when you say a number of drafts, Cody, what are you talking about for, for Primal Sun, for example? So with Primal Sun and in the other stories where I start with the conceit, um, I often just take the conceit to its farthest possible. Like, I, I get so carried away in my first drafts. Um and I actually rely on my trusted uh, first readers and some of my old MFA classmates to tell me, like, okay, actually, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe this is about something else and we should focus on this particular character. Um, so it's often, you know, not until at least the, the fifth draft where I have a much better grasp of um, the character and the more... And the theme and the more universal experience. And like, why was this weird thing and premise going on and just swirling around in my head in the first place? So it's an act of discovery. Yeah. And short stories are their own beasts, aren't Certainly. they? Certainly, yes. And so, and, it, and it's kind of amazing the amount of time that a short story and requires of you and mm -hmm. sort of your headspace with mm -hmm. it. Certainly. As it's transforming. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but as I said, for me, I really do rely a lot on my readers to tell me, like, oh, Cody, I think maybe, like, for example, in No Monsters Here, the bit that I read... I originally, in the first draft, she's she's actually a seamstress, and she still is in, in the, the final version here, but she actually sews him back together, and it becomes this kind of, he becomes this golem-like creature, um, and I realized I just got so far carried away, um, and that this story is actually about all of the ways in which... Um, you know, we're we're always thinking about the worst. We're actually, we're wired for survival, which means we're always trying to think like, what are the worst case scenarios? And it's so hard to live with uncertainty. Um, and, and ultimately, because she has, you know, she's already predisposed, she has these anxieties, she's dealing with OCD, um, you know, she realizes towards the end that, and I don't want to give away too much, but that hope is actually a much harder emotion to deal with than fear and to keep alive compared to fear, because you can go off in so many different directions with fear and anxiety, whereas hope can be a little bit more difficult. So. Wise words. Let's, let's take a short <laughs> okay. break and then, then we'll be back to hear more with Cody Shear, her collection of short stories, Incendiary Girls. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back.
face like a dead china doll You're never gonna know you now But I'm gonna love you Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Cody Shear, her collection, Incendiary Girls. And Cody had also chosen some Elliot Smith uh, that Steph and I were ever so pleased about. <laughs> and I was also saying that I think I should have, like, I would have picked every song from Elliot Smith, but that may have been a bit of overkill. So, <laughs> nah. nah. Um, so, so, Cody, we've, we've got your collection incendiary girls on the table with us. We've talked like about the title story. Mm -hmm. And I think it is so interesting how you said um, that that story actually is, it's, it's a depart, a slight departure. Although Mm -hmm. you, you, you put a twist, Mm -hmm. a surreal twist into it. Um, For a while, it sounded like gross anatomy was going, was anchoring the collection. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about, Yes, yes, it was actually, um, you know, when I finished up my thesis, my um, MFA thesis here at the University of Michigan, uh, the story Gross Anatomy was actually the title of the manuscript. And um, it seemed as though it fit for a number of reasons. Um, But... I actually got some um, resistance from readers who thought maybe that wasn't the right title. And they loved the story, but that title for the entire collection didn't quite fit. So, and these were your trusted readers, Cody, that you've mentioned? People you met, like, in the program? Yes. And And so I certainly value um, their opinions. And, you know, the more I thought about it, I think that they were probably right. And that it maybe just didn't have... Um, you know, the, the same connotations or the same appeal that maybe a different title story would have. Um, so you wrote Incendiary Girls after post-program. Yes. And so, mm-hmm. um, and you also, it's, you've, you've been, you did an internship and then continued to work, mm-hmm. um, at the Comprehensive Cancer Center. Mm-hmm. So this, has this work of yours also been informing the collection as well and working with people who are patients and nurses and caregivers. Yes, certainly. So, um, I really see my role at the Comprehensive Cancer Center as that of a guide. I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, are dealing with, you know, an illness that, there's it, it's it's almost this chaos story like I was talking about and they're trying to make sense of it um, so I see myself as a guide um, and I give some recommendations in terms of reading that has helped other patients and also some short writing exercises um, because a lot of people just haven't really written since you know college or high school and it was in a very very different context um, but as you might you know imagine a lot of people facing a serious illness become more introspective and they're thinking about their priorities in a different way and they really 
really like to get some words down on the page, you know, for their family members, for example. Um, or even, you know, it can be very therapeutic, as those of us who write know. It can be very therapeutic to get um, some expressive writing on the page. And and so was this connected to your your passion like that took you to the neurology lab um, mm-hmm. seeking out the comprehensive cancer center mm-hmm. yes certainly so um a woman who ran patient support services actually sent out an email to the program saying, you know, we're looking to maybe start, we have these other great, you know, resources. We have an art therapist, we have a music therapist, but we don't really have anyone looking at creative writing. And so we'd like to try to start some initiatives. Um, So one other MFA student and I, you know, started to do some some pilot work with people either, you know, receiving chemo, um, some people actually in the bone marrow transplant unit, and we were just trying to figure out, you know, what might work. Um, and as you might imagine in... Um, a, a great teaching and research institution, there's a lot of kind of people who are just inundated and it was a little bit too much to have one more person come in. Um, and it also felt a little bit like homework. So we really had to adjust, you know, some of our, our, our methods and exercises. Well, that's, what, that's what I was wondering, Cody, because yes. it, was it something that you would offer and then people would come to you if... Yes, like we, found, sort of- we found that that was easiest. Um, we would basically distribute some brochures saying kind of what we could offer and, um, you know, try to get people interested. And we found that it was much easier to have, you know, people who are interested kind of come to us rather than, you know, assigning homework, which, you know, sounds kind of awful in hindsight. And that is certainly not what we wanted to do. And we didn't want it to be something um, more stressful obviously um, with with people who are, are patients at the hospital and 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 dealing with this so what were some of the the moments where you felt like this this made a difference for someone um, so there were um, it's a little bit difficult because I'm still down or I'm still bound by patient confidentiality mm-hmm. um, but I did work with two clients i think clients is actually a better word for because of course i was i wasn't a clinician i wasn't training them by any means i was just trying to help out and give suggestions for how to get some of these stories on the page so would they be writing some memoirs or were they writing fiction or it was just a, anything, a little bit of everything yeah wonderful po- poetry yeah. Oh, poetry okay. tended to be really helpful for a lot of people um memoir not so much fiction um Another client was interested in writing a children's book and, you know, looking at kind of fairy tales and how they might even intersect with um, what was happening in this person's life. And did you bring some Angela Carter in? (laughs) I did not. um, But I really wanted to because I, I, as you might imagine, absolutely fell in love with her work. And I I feel in a lot of ways it it has informed mine. but we talked about some of the the basic tropes and um, you know fairy tales, and in some ways 
you know, if you think about the hospital environment and the hospital milieu, it's pretty surreal. I mean, so for example, surgery, um, you are, surgery is a very unnatural and violent trauma to the body. You know, this, this masked man um, escorts you into dream world and you wake up missing a part of yourself. <laughs> so it's really, um, it was interesting to, to help people try to get at that and see how, see some of the strangeness in something that's kind of been normal, like Western medicine that's been normalized and also how people cope in other ways, for example. Um, and that's really how I got to the main character or had the idea for the main character of this story, Transplant. Um, it's kind of co a composite of some of the people I worked with. Um, certainly not one person's story by any means, but as I said, the composite, um, this actually fought that particular story follows a young woman who is, um, desperate for a new heart. Um, and this is, um, pivotal to her survival. And once she has the transplant, she actually starts taking on some of the characteristics of the donor, or at least she believes as much. And just before the transplant, she had actually made this pact with God that she would do whatever it took, you know, to be able to survive. And, and that's another thing I'm really interested in. How do people cope? Um, because there are still so many limitations with Western medicine. So what are people using um, as coping mechanisms? So. And so she actually transforms. She does. Physically and spiritually, yes. Yes. safe to say, in this yes. story. And a God that she did not quite expect <laughs> in, in many ways. So, yes. And Cody, did you get a chance um, to, to pick the, the cover, which features a dappled gray, perhaps an Arabian? I'm it not sure. Because horses are, I feel like, are, are a big part of your world. Yes, yes. I have been, you know, a lifelong equestrian. Um, and horses do come up in the first story as well as the last story, the title story, Incendiary Girls. Um, and I did. I was so fortunate to have an editor who showed me um, several mock-ups of the cover. Um, and I had no idea about this before I, you know, went on this publishing venture. But often um, authors are, are given a cover and they're, you know, it's basically like you this is your cover. <laughs> you don't have a lot of say in this, but we think that this is most marketable. So we've chosen this for you. Um, but as I said, I was very fortunate to have an editor who actually allowed me, you know, to really be a part of the process. And it was funny because she showed me the three and we both agreed immediately on this one. So it felt, um, it just felt absolutely right. And it is actually a gray Arabian. Um, you can you can tell by the slightly concave dished face. And maybe I'm getting a little technical into the breed here, but um, that's how you can tell it's an Arabian. And I just love that there's a kind of anthropomorphic expression um, on, you know, this horse's face, which I, I think fits 
pretty well with um, some of the stories that do feature animal transformations or non-human animals. So, yes, as I said, I'm very fortunate. And what's also a little bit creepy is that my very first horse was a dapple gray Arabian that looks much like this horse. <laughs> so it just felt like it felt absolutely right. And that um, I had, you know, the best editor and the best team behind me. And um, it just it I felt very fortunate for that. And it does seem meant to be Cody. What was the name of your horse? Rocky. His, so his registered name was Ba Rocket, but <laughs> Rocky, yes, was his barn name. Oh, well, that's, that's what, so do you call, do you think of this as Rocky? I do. That's great. <laughs> I do. Co- like Rocky, the ghost of my like long dead first horse is on my first book. It was just, it was surreal. It was so surreal. And but. therefore... Just right. Yes, exactly. It was meant to be. Well, Cody, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thanks Uh, so much for having me. Come back anytime. Um, (laughs) I will. And thanks to Steph for engineering. Um, Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Living Writers um, with Cody Shear today. Uh, Until next time. Used to party up all night Sneaking out and looking for a taste of real life Drinking in a small town firelight Sweet 16 and we had arrived Walking down the streets as they whistle high high Stealing police cars with the senior guys Teach us that we never make it out alive Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM.